We come back to Jonah as Ben read for us just a moment ago. And I pray this has been a profitable journey for you all. <clears throat> it has been for me in reading and preparing. And uh, as we've said along the way, it's a remarkable little book. It is a little book. It's a minor prophet. We've spoken about how all of these books are minor in size, not in importance. Would dare say it's one of the earliest stories we learn. You know, Daniel in the lion's den, David and Goliath. Jonah and the whale. And we're going to talk a little bit today about whale and is it a whale and what are, how are we to understand this, this great fish. But the reality is it's a great story. It's one that kids can understand, one that grabs their imagination. It's clearly something supernatural that happens. I think a lot of our error is that we try to put a natural explanation to this. Uh, the liberals do it to disqualify it. Oftentimes we do it to understand it better. It's a miracle. It's a miracle that God has worked, and we should uh, receive it that way. But there's also so much more to this story, because when you think about it, it's a story that, yes, children can read and understand and hear and love, but there's also much depth to this story. As we look at it, it's a story of incredible depth. Yes, a, a prophet of God running from the calling of God and even from the presence of God, but there is more. There's the story of covenant and of Israel and of God's salvific purpose in his promise to Abraham and how sometimes as agents of that mission we can withstand God in that mission. We can often be the one dragging our feet as Jonah tries to do in this story but it is a story ultimately of of a prophet of God of God's chosen people but also of God's willingness to take the gospel outside of Israel. To take this message of salvation to a people who don't deserve it. But it's easy for Israel to forget that it doesn't deserve it either, right? It's given to them by God's grace. And so there is all of this in it. The chosen people of God, the promised seed that was coming of Abraham, and the blessing that he promised to all the nations of the earth through that seed. Here in Jonah we see, if you will, a shadow of the substance of the gospel and of a prophet saying, I don't like it. I don't want a part in it. Now, we know that God is going to have more to say here in this story. We already know a little bit about that. Truthfully, we probably all know a lot more about it. But the reality is we want to see there's also many other things that we deal with in this text. How about the sovereignty of God? Right, That's what we're saying. Jonah can't just opt out, can he? God pursues Jonah. Jonah flees and God says, where can you run? Where can you run that I can't? get at you, not only see you, not only know what you're doing, but get at you, deal with you. Where can you go? There's also uh, issues of his merciful love. That's the whole backdrop of the story. Jonah doesn't want mercy upon the Assyrians, upon the Ninevites. God is willing to extend mercy to them. His righteous punishment for sin, not only upon the Assyrians if they don't repent, but even on Jonah. We dealt a little bit last week with this question of theodicy because God was bringing judgment on Jonah, but it was also bringing judgment on those sailors. And I tried to mention last week uh, and bring this out, a lot of the commentarians say Jonah was bringing trouble on innocent people. But that's a fundamental misunderstanding of the gospel, isn't it? They're not innocent people. right? God has every right to bring judgment on whomever He pleases. These are sinners idol worshipers, they've just been praying to their own gods. This is a massive affront to a holy and righteous God. These are not innocent people. If they go down with the ship with Jonah, 
There is no injustice in that. But again, neither would that take the burden off Jonah that he brought it upon them. That's a very difficult thing to think about. God would be right in judging them and Jonah would still be guilty for bringing their death upon their head. So all of this are things that we have to wrestle with that are deep in the text, challenge us in the text, we struggle with to think about. They're all here. Questions of theodicy, of resurrection, of restoration. There's a lot in this little story that we can overlook as we read it like a child and it's just about a person not listening to God and they get swallowed by fish and spit out and then they finally go do what they're called. There are questions in this book that lead us to question God and understand Him better, not question Him in the negative sense, but to try to understand Him better. Jonah doesn't want to go. He doesn't want to go up to Nineveh. He hates the Ninevites. We can imagine there being historical reasons for this. We've talked about it. They were a wicked people. They were a torturous people. They were a brutal people. They had invaded and dealt with Israel in the past. It's very possible Jonah knew people who were tortured and killed by the Assyrians and said, there's no way. I won't be part of this. I will not be a part of bringing a message to them that ultimately I have no doubt because I know our God is long-suffering and full of mercy. I have no doubt they'll repent of their sin and He won't destroy them. And I want Him to wipe them out. You may remember that in Jesus' ministry, His disciples want to call down fire on Samaria. Remember that? This is a common theme we see in the Bible is sometimes as agents or as people serving the Lord, we're a little too quick to call His vengeance down on people. And so we need to, uh, to be humble about this. So rather than go up to Nineveh, he goes down, as we said, down to Joppa, down to the port, down to the ship, down into sleep, into a deep sleep. All of this is given to us in the text, but he cannot escape. He is trying to escape the presence of God, not God himself. He knows he cannot escape God, but the presence of God. We spoke about that in covenantal terms. We'll come back to that again today. But it's amazing, isn't it? The pagan sailors do everything they can not to kill Jonah. They are troubled by this. They do not want to be responsible for the death of Jonah, but there is no way to avoid it. There is no plan B. God has put the situation in just this spot that Jonah must be thrown over the side. God has basically informed Jonah that Jonah knows this. The only way this storm is going to stop since it's pursuing me is that you throw me into it. That's the only way. They say, well, maybe we can get to the shore. Nope, that's not going to happen. I tried to make this point last week. If we think all this is happenstance or coincidence, we miss what the Word tells us. Because it tells us in verse 17, our first verse for today, Now the Lord had prepared, this is appointed, the Lord had ordained that a great fish would swallow Jonah. It isn't like Jonah gets thrown in, God says, what am I going to do? I wasn't ready for Jonah to die. Maybe I can find a fish and get him over there in time. No. All of this was to come to pass. And so God had prepared in advance this great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah is swallowed by it. Now, as we think about this today, I want us to look at our text again. We're beginning at the end of chapter 1. That's a little bit awkward, the last verse of chapter 1. In the Hebrew Bible, verse 17 in our Bible is verse 1 of chapter 2. And really, it's a more natural division because it gets to the point here. Uh, Jonah has been thrown into the water. Chapter 1 ends with what? Jonah's death, more or less, right? Now, uh, scholars actually debate if Jonah died in this process. There's reasons we'll come back to about that later. But, but regardless, it ends with us assuming Jonah's dead. In the same way that when Abraham took Isaac up to Mount Moriah, 
he assumed he would not come back without having died first. Now, he did assume he'd come back. Hebrews tells us that if he went to sacrifice Isaac and the promise of God was that the seed would come through Isaac, that God must necessarily rise Isaac from the dead. What a glorious faith Abraham had. Why is he called the father of faith? Look right there. Look right there. In the same way, uh, chapter 1 ends with us assuming Jonah is going to die. The sailors think that. Jonah thinks that. As we're reading it, we think that. And we come to chapter 2 and find out God didn't think that. God didn't plan that. That wasn't God's plan. So we come now to this text, and I'm going to read it one more time. Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of that fish for three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the fish's belly, and he said, I cried out to the Lord because of my affliction, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your billows and your waves passed over me. Then I said, I've been cast out of your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The water surrounded me, even to my soul. The deep closed in around me, weeds wrapped around my head. I went down to the moorings of the mountains. The earth with its bars closed behind me forever. Yet you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer went up to you into your holy temple. Those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy, but I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay what I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. As we look at this text today, I want us to look at just two points quickly today. First of all, Jonah's deliverance, and second of all, Jonah's prayer. And see that these are two important points I think the text wants us to get to. We'll close with a a quick statement on what Jonah says at the end. As we enter today's text, Jonah's story has very rapidly progressed, hasn't it? It's gone from a story of running from the presence of God, to getting on board a ship, to going to sleep in the midst of a great storm, to finding a little nook to do that in, in the belly of the ship, and then these sailors in this storm panicking and and crying out to their gods for deliverance, and no deliverance is to be found with them, for these are gods who do not exist. They cannot speak, they cannot hear, they cannot respond, they aren't real. And as the captain comes down into the the belly of the ship looking for what can be thrown over the side to save the ship, he comes upon Jonah sleeping. And he says, Arise, O sleeper, what, what do you mean by this? What is this about? Why are you sleeping? Get up and pray to your God, for who knows, maybe he will hear us. There's more said there, I think, than even that captain knows. If you know Isaiah's prophecy, then you know, in essence, what Isaiah says is, they cannot hear. So they're right, there is one God who can hear, and Jonah's the one who can pray to him, and Jonah's sleeping. Now we spoke about his exhaustion and running from God, the, the weight of his conscience, I think, bearing down upon him. But regardless, he doesn't recognize that he's in the midst of a storm that he's brought only, not only on himself, but on all those on the ship. Now, as we just said a moment ago, we read that he's thrown over, as he instructed them to do. Throw me over. It's the only way. They resist it, but they finally say, Lord, uh, don't, don't put his blood upon our head if this is not what you'd have us do. But he's telling us, as the prophet of God, this is what we are to do. So <clears throat> they do it. They throw him over the side. Now, 
the text immediately, very quickly jumps to what would be a process, I'm sure, of him sinking and sinking and drowning and dying, right? That's what's happening. He describes it in this prayer as not a quick process. He's not dropped right in and immediately this fish swallows him. He talks about coming to the very edge of death and maybe even into death itself. Maybe even into death itself. And in this process somewhere, as he approaches what he sees as the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea, where the base of the mountains are and, and where the depths of Sheol are, he says, at that point then this fish swallows him. It's interesting because the text very quickly deals with this in, in just this two verses, right? It says, actually in just one verse, it says at verse 17, that he prepared this great fish to swallow him and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So outside of this prayer, we just jumped a quick chunk of narrative in one verse. So it really speeds up there. But it also now slows down in chapter 2 because a story that's been action, 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 action takes a pause in the text for us to read Jonah's prayer. And it's amazing prayer. But before we come to it, I want us to think a moment about this fish because, again, there are many questions that we have about this fish, right? Um, I think... uh, I believe it was uh, Jack Sasson that said this is the most debated and controversial fish that ever lived. And there's truth in that, isn't there? Because people say, oh, this is impossible. What kind of fish has a big enough throat that it could swallow a human being? What kind of fish has, has air in its belly that a person could survive for three days and three nights? And it's interesting, isn't it, to think about this, the different answers that might work. But ultimately, I think they're kind of fruitless because it doesn't tell us what kind of fish. It actually uses the word here, dog, D-A-G in Hebrew, which is fish. It just says fish. It doesn't give us more than that. It does give us the description of gedal, large or growing, big. It's a big fish. God prepared this big fish for this purpose. What does that mean? It may be the only one of its kind that ever existed. There may be no fish like it in the world today. Or it may mean it's a well. It may mean it's some kind of other explanation. But I'll tell you what, the text doesn't think it's that important that we know that detail, right? The miracle is not that this fish is there, but that God saves Jonah. Not that we know exactly what kind of fish it is, but that we trust in the Word of God that God can miraculously work to deliver His people. Now, I know we've got curious minds, and we're going to continue to think about this. But at the end of the day, what matters is God is a God who delivers Nothing is too hard for him. Nothing is impossible for him. If he had to take a tiny little fish and make it gigantic, is that too hard for the God that just sent this storm directly upon this ship? Of course not. So again, we need to always remember that this is speaking of the great and mighty God of the universe who created all things of nothing and who rules and and watches over this entire universe. Now, Jesus also describes this fish in Matthew chapter 12, and he uses the Greek word ketos, which means sea monster. So again, this is a big, monstrous fish, gigantic. If you're in the ocean and a, a whale is coming for you, would you see that as a, as a monster? Probably. But this is the Mediterranean Sea. I don't know, do whales frequent the Mediterranean? Maybe they do. But the answer here is we just don't know what it is. But what we can say is that this is a great miracle. That's what the Bible is telling us. God does a great miracle here. It's not a coincidence. It's not happenstance. It's providence. 
God has appointed this to occur. Jonah is to be swallowed by this fish. The text tells us that explicitly is already solved with the uh, fact that he prepared or appointed this fish. It tells us that it's an agent of the Lord. The Lord has appointed it to do just this. It's to swallow Jonah and to bring him out of the depths of the Mediterranean. One thing that the commentators wrestle with, I don't understand why, is, is this an agent of judgment or salvation, the, the fish? To me, the answer to that is pretty obvious. Jonah is under judgment in the sea, in the waters. In the Mediterranean Sea, he is already under judgment of God. He is dying. If he did not die, he was dying. He knows he's dying. I am drowning. The water is surrounding me. I am falling down into Sheol, into the miry depths that the psalmist says only God can lift me out of. Amen. God is the one who lifts him out of it. He is dying. He is already under this picture of judgment. The whale is what delivers him out of it. The fish. I'm going to say whale. Just get comfortable with that. I grew up hearing this story as a well. Sometimes that just comes back to you, doesn't it? We're talking about traditions in Sunday school this morning, and they're hard to break. They're hard to get out of. But the truth is, it's the means of deliverance by God. It's only because this fish swallows Jonah that Jonah can be delivered. Or I guess God could have done it in a different way, couldn't he? But this is the way God has ordained to do it. And so that is what will happen. So this giant fish, this monstrous fish, is God's means appointed to do this. It is his way of salvation. Now, uh, when you think about this for a minute, Brian Estelle, who's a a great commentator on this book, he says this fish is a divine means of rescue for God's prophet. That's the truth. God has sent this fish to deliver his man, his prophet. And that's exactly what happens here. And so this fish is a minister of mercy sent by God to save the man of God. And while the the fish is something like a tomb for Jonah for three days and three nights, Jesus makes this point, doesn't he? Just as Jonah was in the fish's belly, in the entombed belly of the fish for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the belly of the earth for three days and three nights. And even though that's true, this fish is what rescues Jonah and with purpose. So it's not uh, anything other. It's not just the mercy of God, but it's a purposeful mercy of God. Why? Well, because God is doing something through this beyond just delivering. He's teaching Jonah a lesson. Sinclair Ferguson is right when he states that this fish has a role to play in preparing Jonah for evangelism. Why? Well, Jonah thinks rightfully, that the Assyrians are beyond or, or should, are unworthy, I should say it that way, are unworthy of the mercy of God. He's right about that. The Ninevites are not worthy of God's mercy. But what Jonah comes to in this moment is to realize he's not either. He has sinned against the living God, rebelled against Him, withstood the living God, run from the living God, disobeyed the living God, He is worthy of being thrown into that water. He knew it. He said, the only way you're going to end this is to throw me in the judgment of the waters, hand me over to God for Him to deal with me, and that means drown and die. I'm worthy of it. And yet God shows Jonah mercy. This book is full of ironies, isn't it? He's supposed to go and and call out the sin of the Assyrians, of the Gentile world, and it's the Gentiles in the boat that call out his sin. He's supposed to go and preach to them a coming judgment. He's the one who falls under judgment. He's afraid that God is going to deliver the Assyrians. 
God delivers him from judgment. He'll also deliver the Assyrians from judgment and the sailors aboard that ship. But it's amazing all the ironies that we find here. The prophet who refused to go was left without any excuse. O rebel against God, worthy of destruction, rescued by grace. Who are you to decide who should receive that grace? Who are you to withstand God? Who are you, O rebel, to to deny what God desires to do? There is no answer that we as sinners can give to that question. We just have to recognize that God is a gracious God. We are to be thankful for His grace. We are to be people who love the grace of God. And many of the parables that Jesus taught, we've spoken about this, are there to test our love of grace. The parable of the day laborers. Everyone worked for what they were hired to get paid, yet the ones who saw the master be more generous to some over others hated it. When you read that story, I bet you hated it too the first time. I heard a pastor say, it's a test of whether or not you hate grace. Man, that nailed me right in the heart when I heard that because I'm like, man, I get it. I don't always love grace. We oftentimes think about this. Now, we have to learn to love grace and realize that if God has been gracious to us, it's within his purview to be gracious to whomever he pleases, for he is God, I am not. But again, Jonah is no different. He doesn't want this grace to the Assyrians, but he's put in this situation where he realizes that he isn't worthy of grace and God has been gracious to him. Now, he's already been forced to return to God. If you think about this, he's run from the presence of God. I imagine he's not been prayerful before God on this fleeing when he gets thrown in the water, he's praying. Now we can think, oh yeah, we read it in chapter 2. We're, we're reading it. But actually he's prayed before this, hasn't he? Because he's recounting in this prayer what he'd already prayed. I cried out to the Lord because of my affliction, and he has answered me. I cried out unto you, O God, and you heard my cry. You answered that cry. You have delivered me. So what was Jonah's cry in the first prayer? God, I'm not worthy of being saved. But I call upon your name. Remember me, your servant. In grace, remember me. Remember me as a servant of your covenant. Whatever his wording is, we get a piece of it here. We get a piece of it here. It's a prayer that he called out and cried out to God. So already now, not fleeing from God's presence, he returns to God's presence in prayer, crying out to God for mercy and for help. And he realizes that God is the one who created this situation, every aspect of it, right? Who sent the storm? He knows it was God. Even the pagans knew it was God. Who sent the, or let me go to the next one. Who caused Jonah to be in the water? We would say, well, the pagan sailors. Jonah doesn't say that. Jonah says, you cast me into the deep. It was by your hand, God, that there was no other outcome possible except that. If the sea was going to not engulf and drown all of us on board the ship. There was only one way to prevent it, and that was me going to the side. That's why I said last week, whatever else they tried was going to fail. They tried to get to shore. It cannot stand because God had preordained this fish to be a part of this story. And here we are. He says, God, you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the sea, and you, God, are the one who sent this fish for my deliverance. You did it, God. I didn't do it. I can't construct this. You did it. It wasn't the sailors. It wasn't the weatherman. I don't guess they probably had too many weathermen back then. But it was you, O God, who did all this. And now I come to the point where I cry out to you for mercy. 
Now, in thinking about that, God answered that prayer. That's the fish. The fish is the deliverance. And so we arrive at our second point this morning, which is to look at the the prayer that we find in chapter 2. Jonah's second prayer. Well, what prayer is this? Well, it's noticeable for several reasons. First of all, uh, it's a clear point of demarcation in the text. What comes before it? Hebrew prose. What comes after it? Hebrew prose. What do we find here? Hebrew poetry. We know these psalms, these prayers, these songs are poetic. And this is no exception. It's one of the most brilliantly written psalms in the Bible. And we find it here uh, is Jonah's prayer. It's calling out to God uh, from the belly, if you will, of the fish. And so we find it stand apart in the text. It's noticeably standing apart in the text. Second of all, it's uniquely, uniquely aquatic. Now, there are many psalms that have watery language, right? Into the depths I have fallen, the waves crash over me. This is common language for trouble and death coming upon me. But there is no psalm anywhere in the pages of Scripture that is this full of water imagery. Makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, look where he is. He's in the literal waters. All the things the psalmists were thinking about is imagery of the, the judgment or of death enclosing them. Here, Jonah is literally in those waters of trouble both figuratively and literally, right? They are waters of judgment, but they are also literal physical waters, and Jonah is in them. Now, uh, it's a, an amazing psalm for other reasons, because first of all, it's a biblical prayer. It's a biblical prayer. And what do I mean by that? I don't just mean it has good theology in it or something like that. It, it does, but I mean it's a biblical prayer in the fact that Almost all of the wording of this is borrowed from imagery from the Psalms. Jonah is quoting numerous Psalms in this. By the way, the, the number, the total number of allusions to the Psalms is debated amongst the commentarians, but they all agree on these. Quoted in this Psalm is Psalm 18, Psalm 40, Psalm 42, Psalm 69, and Psalm 130, which Jacob just read today. All those are quoted here. Bits and pieces, lines, imagery from them, are quoted in this. Psalm 130 is so clear, you don't even really have to defend it. But I, I want to mention this. I had said long ago that when we come to Psalm 30, because I knew we eventually get there unless the, the Lord comes back and uh, we're, we're not meeting. Uh, but uh, if we are meeting, we come to Psalm 130. I said, when we do, we're going to sing by grace alone because that's Luther's hymn based on Psalm 130. What I never anticipated in God's providence is we would be in this psalm on the day that we come to Psalm 130. I didn't plan that out when we were coming to Jonah. It was just, hey, it'd be interesting to do. And sometimes the Lord works those things out. I'm not sure why or what he's trying to tell us, but, but it's, a, it's a pretty huge coincidence if you want to lean to coincidence. But anyway, think about Psalm 130 for a moment. Turn back there if you don't mind. And just, uh, just think about what we heard earlier, both heard in Jacob's reading of it, but also in our singing of it. And you'll immediately see the connection to what Jonah is, is praying here. And I also want to say this, for those of you that have, have not been here for a long, long term, when we were going through some of our previous books, Hebrews a couple of years ago, we were in a part where there's a lot of quotations, and Romans before that where there's a lot of Old Testament quotations. It's important to realize the way the biblical authors use quotations of Scripture because it helps us to understand what they're getting at. They're not just usually quoting the one line. If you look at Paul and Romans, scholars oftentimes even are like, it's hard to figure out what Paul's arguing here. It's not if you go back and read the entire chapter that he's quoting from. Paul's using that quotation as shorthand to say, go back and read this and understand 
the, the imagery or the purpose that I'm getting at here. And this is no different. When Jonah is quoting from Psalm 130, he's quoting the theology of Psalm 130. If you think about it for a moment, you see immediately the, the correspondence to what Jonah is praying. Out of the depths I cried to you, O Lord, hear my voice and are singing our, my, our voice of pleading. Right here he says, Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. The exact same thing. As I cry out to you, O God, hear my prayer, I pray. Because out of the depths, this is the, the picture of the depths of water, right? Of being deep in the water, deep down in death and judgment, near this place of, of danger that he's crying out. But I want you to look at where he goes next. If you were singing the song by Luther, you recognize instantly uh, what, what is at play here, this idea of by grace alone. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, if you should consider all of our sin, who could stand? Who could stand? Luther's arguing the song that it's only by grace alone that we can have standing before God. But so is the psalmist. If it's on our merit, who can stand? Jonah knows this. Who can stand? We know Jonah knows it because he's already judged the Assyrians this way. They're not worthy. But Jonah, how can you argue you are? See, there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. If you continue to read this psalm, which Jacob read to us earlier and we largely sang, then you'll also know that part of the argument here is that the Lord is merciful and shall redeem his people shall redeem his people. Jonah is referencing this psalm saying, Lord, don't forget me. Don't be done with me. I cry out to you from the depths of judgment. Lord, remember your servant. Forgive me for my iniquities, for I know you are a God who is faithful to save his people. Even when we go astray, even when we sin against the holy and living God, You are a God who is merciful when we cry out to you. So remember me, O God. Now, if you continue through this text, you'll see him say it in many different ways because Jonah is desperate in this. He's quoting his desperation. Look at all that he says. The floods surround me. Uh, All your billows and waves pass over me. You know, if you can't swim and you're looking up and the surface of the water is getting further and further away, that's terrifying. Jonah is in that moment. You've cast me, says, in verse 4, out of your sight. The very thing Jonah toyed with, which was getting away from the covenantal presence of God, now he fears, has God cut me off? Not just from his covenantal presence, but from his presence. This is terrifying to someone who loves God, even a sinner. He says, the deep closed in around me, the waters surrounded me, even to my soul. Weeds wrapped around my head. This is a Hebrewism, isn't it? There was death wrappings, weren't there? He's saying, I'm so far down in the ocean that the seaweed, the weeds of the ocean have become, or the sea have become my wrappings, my funeral wrappings. I went down even to the base of the mountains. Then he says this, and this is interesting because Psalm 69 is the exact same way. It deals with both watery terms and death terms together. So listen to Psalm 69, 14 and 15. Deliver me out of the mire. Pilgrim's progress, right? That's an entire point of being in the slough. Deliver me out of this mire and let me not sink. Let me be delivered from those who hate me and out of the deep waters. 
Let not the flood water overflow me, nor let the deep swallow me up, and let not the pit shut its mouth upon me. That idea of the pit is Sheol. That idea of the pit is death, the place of the dead. And what Jonah's saying is, in our text, I came down to the base, the base, if you will, of the, of the sea, even to the base of the mountains, and the earth and its bars closed behind me forever. The gates of, of Hades, if you will, uh, the gates of Sheol closed me off. I was at a point where there was no return. For Lord, you have brought me up, he says. Now, before I get to this, to be brought up out of the pit, you have to first be in the pit. The very thing the psalmist is saying, I was in the very pit, in the very place of Sheol, in the very place of the dead, and Lord, you brought me up. You brought me up, which only you can do. Now, really quick, this is why people say, or see in this, that Jonah died. Jonah did just go in and pray on his way dying, but he died, and his dead body swallowed by this fish, and God resurrected Jonah. By the way, if you think that's a Christian interpretation, Jewish scholars are writing this before Christ was born, that this might be understood better as a resurrection of Jonah. People in the, in the Christian faith say, well, that would make sense, because just as Jesus is in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights, so Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Christ was dead in the place of the dead. Jonah says, I went to the, behind the very gates of Sheol, the place of the dead. We uh, could get into a lot of depth there, you want to read more on that imagery, we've got an article online on our website about it, but about uh, the place of the dead, the abode of the dead. But anyway, regardless, I don't think you have to interpret it that way. If you just want to say Jonah was near death, that's fine. Because he knows he would have died. His only hope was in what God did. God brought him out of the pit. God brought him out of the, the place of death. Oh Lord, my God, he says. Notice again his language here. I cried out to the Lord, the covenantal name of God, Yahweh. I cried out to the Lord because of my affliction. I remembered the Lord, the Lord, my God, in verse 6. Over and over, he's using covenantal terms to describe his relationship to who God is. And notice one more thing. We talked about the presence of God and how in prayer he turned to the presence of God, the one who was fleeing the presence of God. It's also interesting that the text is trying to remind us that he was fleeing from the covenantal presence of God, the place where God abides with his people. Where is that? That's the temple in Jerusalem. That's the temple. He was trying to run from the land that God had given his people where he covenantally resides with his people. God isn't restrained by the temple. He isn't restrained by the Holy of Holies. That's the place that represents his presence with his people. Jonah's running from it. Notice now, in repentance, what does he do? Though I have been cast out of your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. I may not be able to get to your holy temple, but I will look toward it. No longer running from the presence of God, he turns toward that symbol of God's presence amongst his people, crying out to God. Now, all of this is important language. He's afflicted in verse 2. His fears being cast out in verse 4. His soul faints. This is at the point of losing all strength, body, and soul. Near death itself. All this is shown to us. But if it's a 
a prayer, if you will, that's biblical and in desperation. It's also a prayer of thanksgiving. Look at the end of our text for today, and look what it says. Those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy. Those on the ship that were crying out to their gods, their gods were going to avail nothing. They were doomed. They forsake their own mercy. But what does he say? But I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. How do we praise our God? Well, thanksgiving, being a joyous people. Right? This is what, as we struggle with what is the will of God for us, we can find plenty of places in the Bible that tell us, for this is the will of God for you. One of those places is to rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks. You want to find the way you're supposed to live your life, right there begin, joy, thanksgiving, prayer. It's a good place to start, right? There are other things that we can find in the text as well. But look what happens here. Jonah returns to God with thanksgiving. God, you have saved me. God, you delivered me though I was not worthy. I will pay what I vowed. And I believe what he means here is I'll return to doing the things I'm supposed to do as a prophet. I'll return to being a servant who is obedient. A servant who does what I'm called to do. He's going to be given the chance in just a moment to prove if that's true, isn't it? Will he really obey God? And even if he does, will he do it begrudgingly, right? Or will he do it willingly? It's going to be an interesting thing for us to come to. But I want to close really quick with the last thing that he says. Because he testifies to something that he knows of God. Salvation is of the Lord. Now we know that's theologically true. But it's so obvious in this text. Right? What did Jonah do to be delivered here? Nothing. He didn't create the storm. I mean, he's the cause of the storm, but he didn't create the storm. Right? He tells the sailors to throw him over, but he knows that's the only solution. God won't let any off-ramp for that. They can't get to the shore. They try other ways of dealing with it. God says, no, none of those will avail. The only thing that will avail to stop this storm is for Jonah to be thrown into the water. And then God has prepared this fish for his saving. So Jonah begins to wrestle with this. God saved me, though I wasn't worthy. How much does he wrestle with the fact that God saved Israel, though Israel isn't worthy? Even Judah. I'm sure, I'm sure Jonah, even though he's a prophet of the northern kingdom, would say, yeah, Judah's still a better, better place than we are, but Judah isn't worthy. He saved the great King David, but King David wasn't worthy. David had to say, blessed is the man whose iniquities are not accounted to him. David had to say that. And David was a sinner. As great as he was, David was a sinner. But guess what? So was Moses. Why was it Moses couldn't enter the promised land? Right? Okay, what about Abraham? Father Abraham. Father Abraham erred along the way as well. He wasn't saved by his righteousness. He was saved by faith. So how much Jonah's wrestling with that, we cannot know. But Jonah comes to the point of confessing the truth. Salvation is God's business. God is the one who determined that I not drowned and be saved. I couldn't appoint the fish. God appointed the fish. I couldn't have, even if a fish appeared, I couldn't have saved from being killed by it. But God could deliver me through it. And what is more, if that's true, maybe I should say since that's true, we come to an important point. It's God's decision with the Assyrians. It's God's decision with the Ninevites. It's not mine. 
if God wants to take this message of, of coming judgment and repentance and salvation to the Ninevites, it's not my business to tell him he can't do it. Because salvation doesn't belong to me, it belongs to him. I'm his messenger. I go where he tells me to go. I didn't. And look at all the woe and disaster that fell upon me and others because of it. Salvation is of the Lord. He declares it, and that's important. But he's not done wrestling with it. And uh, we will see as we move ahead. You already know this. I don't mind giving away the, the story here a little bit. He goes, and I think he does everything that he can to be as uncooperative as he can. And we'll see that as we move forward and how he preaches this message to the Ninevites and what he goes out of town to do, hoping that they will not listen. But I want you to remember this. Jonah is one that reminds us of this. What is faith at its basis? Faith is a trust in God, in God's goodness, in his grace, in his judgment, in his righteousness. In this very trial of faith, which Jonah was in, a a trial that could extinguish any hope, yes, But Jonah believed and cried out to God that God is a God of deliverance, even of sinners, even of those who should know better, even people like you and me. God is a God of deliverance. And Jonah cries out to him. And uh, as one author said, thinking of the story of, of Abraham and the promise made to him and how hard it was to believe, it says against hope, in hope he believed. And I think we see the same thing with Jonah struggling as can be with God's plan, God's will. But he knows God. He knows God to be merciful and righteous, which is his objection to begin with, isn't it? That God is merciful. He's struggling with it. But he's beginning to say, I'm going to put my hope and faith and trust in God, for salvation belongs to the Lord. Amen.